So as a supervisor of therapists, I often hear a lot of very interesting questions from my supervisees and from students that are of a clinical nature that I think are just really fascinating, you know? Uh, that's one of the things I love about my job is often supervisees or students or interns will come to me and say, okay, I had this client situation that I, I'd like to, you know, hear your opinion on. And, you know, th- this thing happened, What you know, t- tell me uh, what should I do or how should I see this or did I make a mistake? And And it's really one of the fun parts of my job. And the situations are just endless and they're always new and they're always really interesting to me. And I, I just really like having discussions with people about that. And strangely, it never occurred to me to have a podcast in which I present some of these questions and and present what I said to some of these people. Uh, I don't know why it never occurred to me to do that. So here we are. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a professor and a licensed therapist. It's just me today, and I thought I would talk about some of the questions that some uh, some clinicians ask me and present some of my answers. And if you're a clinician out there or you're someone that isn't a clinician out there and you have some things to say about this, feel free to email me at contact at psychologyinseattle.com or going to psychologyinseattle.com and filling out the contact us form. Also, I'm currently pushing my continuing education program. So if you're a licensed professional and you need continuing education, it's my understanding that most people around the states can use this course toward their license and you can get credit for listening to the podcast by going to psychologyinseattle.com and clicking on the continuing education tab. There you'll find different episodes you can listen to, or maybe you've already listened to them. And you can fill out the short little easy quiz at the end, pay a small fee, and get a certificate of completion that you can send to your licensing board proving that you got continuing education, which we all need as licensed professionals. Okay, so let's get into it. So the first question that that a supervisee asked me about was, she was the, the therapist. She was struggling with a family with a child that was lying often. And she didn't know what to do. She asked me, how do I, how do I get this child to stop lying so much? And this is a, a, a behavior that I see often in children that is presented in therapy. And I have a lot of opinions about it. It's really frustrating for families and to some extent less frustrating, but very frustrating also for therapists when you have a child that's lying. A typical profile would be like, um, a, a 10 year old that lies often about things that, that doesn't make, a, that don't make a lot of sense. Like, um, the kids are playing outside and, and, um, the boy kicks the ball and it hits his younger sister in the face and the parents are there and see it and say, Hey, you need to cool down on the, on the kicking of the ball because you might hurt your, your little sister. And, the boy will say, what do you mean? And the parents will say, well, we just saw you kick the ball and it hit young Jennifer in the face and you need to, you know, not do that. And he'll say, no, I didn't. I didn't kick the ball. And they'll say, yes, you did. We just saw you do it. And he'll say, no, I didn't kick the ball. I, I don't even know what you're talking about. And so that's just one example of how strange lying can be. 
you know, all kids will lie when they feel like they need to at some point. And there's varying degrees of lying, but, but some kids seem to lie even when it makes no sense. Like in the example I gave, it doesn't make a lot of sense for a child to lie in a situation like that because not only will they get in trouble for kicking the ball, but now they're in trouble for lying. And there's a, there's a lot of kids that present behaviors like this. And again, they can be very frustrating. And a, a lot of novice therapists will say, well, I need to stop this child from lying. And I remember getting into that trap myself. And I would go over with the kid and say, okay, you understand that you lied, right? And you really need to stop doing that. Well, the reason why this, now that that might help, you know, that I call it truth skills. Sometimes I say, we need to work on our truth skills. And that certainly can help. And it's essentially just guidance and just trying to help someone break a bad habit, trying to help them problem solve. But for a lot of people, and particularly the ones that are most frustrating, it's, it's really just not that simple. Because if they understood the logic behind their actions, they wouldn't be lying in the first place. Because it, again, it doesn't make a lot of logical sense to lie when not only are you going to get in trouble for what you did, but now you're in trouble for lying. So, so to try to approach it logically and head on, usually, in my opinion, is just wasted effort. So, so what are the reasons why people lie in situations like this? And, and what's the treatment for it? Well, some, some children lie because there's a systemic reason for it. Now, this is very complicated, but some, some, children, some families are such that the, the family wants a distraction from some larger, seemingly more difficult problem. So say the parents are going to get a divorce because they're conflicting a lot. Well, the family might elect a child to present a distraction so that the parents can come together and it will stave off the, the, the impending divorce in that it provides a focus for the parents to come together on. And sometimes children will start lying and presenting lots of defiant behaviors as a way of focusing their parents. Now, this isn't a conscious thing. This is an unconscious thing on behalf of the child, but it, it serves a purpose to the system. And the system rewards the child for this behavior inadvertently by making the family feel better, by having the parents come together and have their relationship uh, more cohesive as a result of the ch child lying. So sometimes you have to focus on the parental relationship and strengthening that or even just moving toward divorce and, and just moving to the next phase of the family in order for the child to give up their need for lying. So that's just one example of the possible reasons why a child would exhibit what we might call pathological lying. And there are just, there's, you know, a million others. Another reason why uh, children will lie in a way that seems excessive and strange is because at, as, at an early point in their life, they were not given an opportunity to attach very well to other people. And as a result, they don't feel the same empathy for other people. This doesn't necessarily mean that they're a psychopath. It might mean that, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. What, what I'm saying is that when, when we're young, very young, we learn that when we hurt other people in various ways, including lying to them, that it hurts them. And through our empathy as, as human beings, we are in, in turn hurt by that and, and therefore restrain ourselves when certain impulses come up. You know, as adults, we have impulses to lie, 
but we choose not to because we don't want to hurt other people because we have compassion. So this, the same is true for children when they are raised in, a, in an environment that helps them with that. Now, if you're a, if you're a child and, and you're raised in a chaotic environment or a neglectful environment or a confusing environment, an abusive environment, uh, a substance-addicted environment, then you might have a difficult time developing the sort of empathy that is required to provide restraint upon hurting other people in these mild ways. Now, I'm not talking about like slitting their throats. I'm talking about mild hurts like lying to somebody. You know, we, we all are to some extent self-centered and self-interested, but we also are compassionate animals. And when we're young, we, we learn through over time through interactions with other people what tends to hurt other people. Well, if you're neglected as a child, then you aren't given that instruction. You might lie and because things are so confusing around you, you might get a weird reaction from your family and therefore not learn that lying hurts people. And then later on, when you have the impulse to lie, it just sort of comes out and, and you don't restrain yourself because it, it, you haven't learned how it works in the world of interpersonal relationships. I'm not saying this very articulately, but I, I hope you understand what I, what I mean by that. So, so, to, so for these people that have these difficult childhoods, and this leads to various different, various different em, empathic problems, and, and including lying, it's difficult to treat that because how, how do you get someone to go back in time and get them to be reparented in a different way? Well, it's, it, it's very difficult to do that. So, so the objective is not to stop the child from lying, although that'd be great, but really the objective becomes helping the child internalize relationships that are stable, loving, not neglectful, that are attentive and attuned to them. And through that relationship, they will begin to have empathy for people and begin to learn that lying hurts them and therefore hurts themselves. But that takes a lot of time. And a lot of therapists, a lot of families aren't very patient. And so um, for, for a lot of families, in my experience, this is really where the treatment has to focus. You have to focus on stability. You have to focus on providing love and attention to that child, either hopefully in the, in the home and then also between the therapist and the family. And so through this internalization of attachment, the child will naturally shed their lying behavior. So that's, that's a main way that I look at it. Another thing to consider when it comes to lying is that, again, in abusive households, some children became so desperate to avoid the abuse that they lied to get out of things. So if you have, say, a parent that's an alcoholic, say you have a, a father that is drinking a lot and very impulsive with his violence towards his children, well, when you're a child in that family and you say you make a mistake, like you spill some milk and the father turns around and, 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 and is raging and says, you know, who did this? Well, it, it's a survival technique to lie at that point and to become very good at it. And one way you become very good at it is to lie very quickly. You'll notice when people lie, they tend to hesitate because 
there's certain processes in the brain that, that slow you down because you're trying to make up a lie and you're trying to figure out what to say. Whereas when you're telling the truth, it comes out much more quickly because it, it ha- doesn't have to go through so many filters in the brain. And so in order to become very good and, and uh, convincing as a liar, you have to have things come out very quickly. And so, you know, father turns around and says, who spilled the milk? And over time, you learn how to lie very, very quickly. And it becomes a, a somewhat habitual as a survival technique. Well, now imagine that this, this child is taken away from the father and adopted into a foster family or something like this. Well, you can imagine that this lying behavior, this habitual lying behavior, would perpetuate that the habit was rewarded so many times in the original context that it's difficult to break that habit once the child is out of that context. And the child doesn't have the wisdom or the maturity to reflect on themselves and say, hmm, I think I'm lying too much. So you, you can't just simply try to convince the child that they no longer need that survival technique and and they can let go of the lying behavior. Adults in their 30s, 40s, and 50s tend to have the ego strength to be able to reflect on themselves and try to modify their behavior. Children in general have a harder time with that. Some children are good at that, but some children aren't. And so really the task becomes, you can try to make the kid more aware of lying and and that's something that I've done. But really what you want to do is you want to make the child feel much more safe. You want to continue making the child feel safe in their current environment, whatever that is, because the idea goes as they feel more safe and less likely to be abused, then the the lying will just start to go away. So again, the focus usually when it comes to pathological lying isn't to get the child to stop lying, but to see it as a symptom of some larger issue, more fundamental issue that needs to be addressed. And therefore, my advice to clinicians that are frustrated with this and focusing on the lying is to not do that um, because it's, in my view, not, it's not always beneficial to, to focus on berating a child. I mean, I'm, I'm, taking, I'm exaggerating, but you know, if, if, if you're spending half of the session trying to convince a child to not lie, then it's possible that your treatment focus is misdirected. So another question that a supervisee asked me about was they're dealing with a, a child that is becoming aggressive in session. So the child is hitting the therapist with toys and this sort of thing. Not, not too hard, but, but hard enough to make the therapist uh, a little concerned. So the therapist is asking me, you know, what do I do? How do I get my client to stop throwing toys at me in session? And, and this sort of thing. And see, this is a common thing if you're a family therapist or a child therapist. This is, this is a common issue that, that you'll find. Um, usually adults don't throw toys at, at their clients. Sometimes they do. I mean, at their therapist. But, um, so, so the first thing that I say to particularly novice therapists is that they have every right to protect themselves. If they have a client that is you know, threatening their safety and or causing them physical pain, then as a, as a therapist, you have every right to say, 
uh, something to the parents along the lines of, I've done everything I've could to stop your child from throwing toys at me, but I can't get them to stop. And so we're going to have to figure out some other solution or I'm going to have to terminate and, and maybe recommend a different therapist or some other kind of treatment modality that doesn't uh, create opportunities for your child to abuse their clinician. So, so as a, and a lot of novice therapists don't feel like they have the right to say that they, they think it's their responsibility to change the behavior for the child and, and they feel like they're not good enough as a therapist if they can't magically hypnotize the, the child and to stop doing that. So, so that's what I say first off. You have every right to protect yourself, and, and that's the bottom line. You don't have to endure pain uh, as a therapist. Um, you shouldn't have to endure pain as a therapist is my point. But having said that, um, most most therapists, and myself included, would would try a number of things to see if they might be able to uh, find a solution. Um, wh- one of the things is how we look at it. You know, one one tempting way to look at it is, oh, it's a distraction. This child is throwing toys at me, and it's a distraction from the real therapy that I that I want to get done. I want to talk with this kid about their feelings, and the, the whole time the child is throwing, you know, objects at me. This is a, a nuisance that I need to get rid of. Well, I recommend that therapists see this situation as the therapy itself, that it's not a nuisance and that it's not a distraction, but it is the therapy itself. The child is presenting their emotions and their material to you through the throwing of objects to you, at you. What does it say about how they feel about people? What does it say about their internal experience? And what can you do with that as a therapist? A lot of therapies for children involve reflection of feelings and being attuned to their feelings. And so you can just reflect. You could say, oh, okay, so you want to throw objects at me. I see that. I see that you're throwing something at me. It seems like you might want to hurt me. I see that. Okay. Maybe you're angry at me. I don't know. I'm not sure. Um, ow, that, that hurt that you threw that at me. Did you know that that, that, that hurt uh, my arm when you threw that toy at my arm? Did you know that that hurts my feelings when you throw things at me? And as a therapist, you can contain that. You know, if, if you're a friend of the child or a teacher, you kind of have to address that behavior. Otherwise, uh, you're going to have a hard time teaching all your students. Or if you're a parent, you have to clamp down on that. But as therapists, we have the ability to explore these things in a, in a, more, in a way that, that has a lot of freedom to it. And so we can explore it. The thing that I like to tell novice therapists is that children and adults have very complicated emotional lives. And aggression and hatred and anger is often a part of that. A lot of times, aggression and anger and rage is very distasteful to people because it's distasteful to us in our culture. And therefore, when we see it in clients, we tend to want to snuff it out. We want to say, you know, stop being angry and stop being aggressive because it's, it's antisocial. It's wrong. When, in fact, that might be just the thing to help the therapy progress. Now, am I saying that therapists should encourage people to be antisocial? Absolutely not. I'm not saying that should, should, uh, you know, I, I definitely think therapists should help guide children regarding their behavior, regarding how they treat other people. But 
What, what I'm also saying is that it's not your responsibility as a therapist to end aggression in your clients. That, that, that might be part of the issue. I mean, obviously, you, you want the child to have a rewarding social life. And if they're aggressive with people, then that's not going to help them. But it's not necessarily something you have to target in the same way that you don't have to target lying head on. You can just see the aggression as a symptom of a larger problem. Again, often having to do with abuse and chaos and attachment issues. Maybe there's a biological problem, who knows. But you, you want to focus perhaps on the, on the whole person and see the aggression as a part of that rather than the aggression as the sole reason why they're in therapy. And again, as I said before, if you feel that the child's behavior is presenting too much uh, of a difficulty for the therapy, then you have every right and, and really the ethical responsibility to have a conversation with the parents regarding what sort of therapy is going to work best for this child. And you have every right to protect yourself from being hurt in therapy. So another question that a supervisee asked me about was that she has a, a 10-year-old girl child who was just adopted into a, a new family. And the adoptive mother is bringing the 10-year-old into therapy and saying, I want you, the therapist, to get the child to talk about the trauma that she experienced from her birth family. So again, you have a, a child that was in a family that was abusive in some way. And then the child's probably taken away from those parents from by CPS, by the government, taking the child away from the family and uh, adopted into a new family. And the adoptive mother is probably looking at the child and seeing some behavioral issues and, and some psychological issues and says, hmm, I, I need to bring this child into therapy and says, I need you to, to talk with this child about the trauma that they've been through so they can get over it and stop being a defiant child in, in my home. And this is a common thing that, that I see as a family therapist. It's a common reason for why people bring people into therapy. And it's not, um, and I'm, I'm wording it in a way that's a little judgmental, but just to let me be clear that I totally understand why adoptive parents would do this. And for the most part, they're, they're pointed in the right direction, but sometimes we need to, as therapists, have conversations with parents, adoptive parents, about how to view this issue. You know, a, a common thing in the ether in our culture is that if, uh, if you've been traumatized and you talk about it, then you get over it and then you're okay. And this is a, you know, gross simp simpl simplification. To some extent, it's true, but, but, how it gets how it gets done and in, at what pace and in what way is is really complicated and needs to be done with care usually in long term therapy instead of just dropping the child off at therapy and saying i need you to get this kid to talk about the trauma in a few sessions so that they can uh, be cured of it it's usually much more long term than that and so a lot of times you just have to talk with, so, in, so when the supervisee asked me about this question, I said, well, you probably need to have a conversation with the adoptive mother and, and really find out what they're concerned about. Or is the adoptive mother concerned about current behavior? Is the mother concerned about uh, 
the trauma only, it, you know, you really have to get an idea from the mother as to what they're looking for. Because if they're looking for a quick fix, then you might have to have a conversation about what that's going to look like. If they're looking for a more long-term thing, then then you have more flexibility and, and can talk about that with them. So that was the first thing. The second thing is, is that a, it, there's a lot of misconception out there regarding trauma and how to recover from it. And as I've talked about in previous episodes about trauma recovery and trauma therapy and evidence-based trauma therapy, it's, it's really, it can be very harmful when we as therapists just ask clients about their traumas because it can re-traumatize them. If they suffer from PTSD, which often clients do suffer from PTSD or, or dissociation or these kinds of things, then when we ask them about their trauma in therapy, they have to relive it in their mind. You're basic, it's the same, the, 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 the analogy I, I like to give is, imagine if you're afraid of spiders, you're, you're deathly afraid of spiders, and if, if you saw a spider, your anxiety would go up, and if a spider got on your hand, you would freak out. Well, asking a client about their past traumas is the same as taking a bucket of spiders and dropping it on someone's head, because they have to relive that trauma in their mind all over again. They have to experience all the feelings and all the images. And this is, for some people, a re-traumatization. You're basically dumping a pile of spiders on an arachnophobe. So you really don't want to do that, obviously, because it'll flood the person. It'll make them very distressed and create dissociation and PTSD symptoms and depression and suicidality and, and anxiety and and they'll hate therapy as a result. So we really have to be very paced in how we help people with their traumas. So when we have a 10-year-old that has been traumatized, we have to go even slower because children don't take to therapy very quickly. Children often don't want therapy. They're being forced to go. They don't even know what therapy is. And They sit down in your office and their mom is making them sit there and they're looking at you like, I don't want to be here. I don't know why I'm here. Uh, I hope this isn't horrible. And so they're not asking you like a 40-year-old would, please help me with my trauma. I need to get over my trauma. They're not saying that usually. And so you have to go even slower because in order for someone to recover from trauma, not always, but usually you have to have some buy-in from the client. You have to have some agreement from the client that it's okay to move forward. So uh, with a 10-year-old, if, if you're going to start talking about, say, for instance, they were sexually abused by their parents as, as a younger child, if you're going to start talking about those events, you have to have a lot of things in place prior to even beginning talking about it. You have to have some kind of an agreement that the client's okay with talking about it. You have to get the client aware of their emotional state, which most people aren't, particularly 10-year-olds. You have to get them aware of their distress level. You have to get them to have proven ways that they can reduce their distress. They have to be very aware of their emotional state and very adept at being able to affect their emotional state in a way that is um, conducive to 
exposure to the trauma that they experienced. And so these things take a long time. And, and if you don't do that, you uh, run the risk of re-traumatizing the child, which of course you would never want to do because it's harmful. But you, you also run the risk of just not doing very good therapy. You know, just simply talking about a trauma that happened, you know, it's not necessarily going to help. So uh, a much broader understanding of the treatment plan needs to be developed by the clinician and and the parents sometimes have to be involved in that and have to be aware of that. So that's what I said to the supervisee who was wondering about how to address the adoptive mother's concerns that the child needed to talk about um, her trauma that she experienced when she was younger. All right. Well, that does it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. If you liked this sort of episode, let me know because I can do this all day long because this is what I do all day long. I, I've not all day long, but, but every week I field a number of questions from my supervisees uh, along these lines. They ask me questions and I think about it and then I respond and, and I've been doing it for, you know, 15, 17 years or something. And so I have a lot of random ideas rolling around in my head and I have a perspective and a way of approaching various different clinical situations. And, and I was just thinking that it might be interesting to the listeners to, to hear about them because, you know, they're real life examples rather than talking about theory all the time. It's, you know, it's an actual situation. So if you'd like to hear more stuff like this, let me know. So that's the end of the episode. Thanks for joining me and please take care of yourself. And if you're a clinician out there, take it easy on yourself because clinical situations can be very confusing. So don't be ashamed if you are confused because I often am confused as we all are. So take care. 